what's in your hands. This week, we're going to be talking about the, um, the splitting of the Red Sea. Who enjoys that song, by the way, that we did this morning, No Longer Slaves? That song, man, whoosh, that's a good song. It just really grabs me. Well, we're going to be picking up in Exodus chapter 13, the end of Exodus chapter 13, and I just want to give a little bit of, um, little bit of background on what's going on. Moses has begun to embrace his calling. And we see the 10 plagues of Egypt. We see those 10 plagues that God brings upon um, the greatest nation that existed at that time. And he's really just demonstrating his power, his strength, his might, um, his superiority over all things. Now, it's interesting to me, and I was going to talk a little bit more about this, but we'll kind of go through it quickly. If you study the 10 plagues, and we're not going to do that this morning in depth, if you study every single plague in some way, shape, or form, was designed to show that God was superior to Egyptian gods. So every single plague has to do with an Egyptian god, one of their major gods, as a matter of fact. The Egyptians had many gods, but they had a, just a couple of major, major deities. And in every single plague, God is demonstrating, you know, he's demonstrating, I'm superior over the gods of, of, um, of the Nile. The Egyptians had a frog goddess. They had a, a god of... of um, of the earth, so lice goes against that, and so on and so forth. Every single plague, God is demonstrating, I am the one true God. And the Egyptians are sitting there having to wonder, what is going on? These are the gods that built, and understand, this was a nation of success. This was a nation that felt that their gods had proven themselves. They didn't just get to the place that they were at by themselves. They felt like their gods got them to that place. So when this unknown God steps in for these very ordinary mundane slaves and starts demonstrating his power and strength over their gods, it's really shaking some things up. So that's taken place throughout the plagues. What's funny is that what we read in Exodus chapter 4 was that God gave Moses the call. And he tells Moses, take your staff, take this staff and do these signs and wonders. If you study the, the, the plagues, the first four things that happened, four, first four miraculous, including the serpent, the rod turning into a serpent, it wasn't even Moses' staff that did those things. It was Aaron's staff. If you read the text, it does not say Moses' staff. It says Aaron threw down his staff. Did you know it was Aaron's staff that turned into a serpent before Pharaoh, not Moses's? It was Aaron's staff that polluted the Nile. It was Aaron's staff that brought out the frogs, the lice, the flies. And so we see this weird thing going on where, where Moses still seems to be fighting this calling. Moses still seems to be sitting in the background. Now, by the middle of the plagues, Moses starts stepping out a little bit more. God told him, take your staff and do these miraculous wonders, what my signs and wonders for, for all people to see. By the time it gets to the boils, Moses doesn't even use his staff. It says he grabs some dust and kind of throws it up in the air awkwardly. Like, and have you ever encountered that with somebody where they just begin to step into their calling? They begin to step into something greater and it's really kind of awkward. Who's ever learned how to dance? Okay, so who has never learned how to dance? Woo, that's me. I have one dance move. That's it. That is my dance move. What's sad is that my boys are already inheriting that single dance move. My sons, that's all they can do. They used to be good, and then they started watching me, and now not so much. Moses, in a sense, is learning how to dance. He's learning how to figure this thing out. And one of the most beautiful things to me is the patience of God as this is going out. 
God told Moses to do these things. Now Aaron's doing these things. God told Moses, Aaron, at the very most, can be your mouthpiece. He can be the one to speak. But the first four signs, we see Aaron doing everything, and God is still faithful. God still shows up. God still moves in power and might and strength. So I just want to encourage you today. There can be a lot of guilt. There can be a lot of shame when somebody like me says, hey, you need to embrace your life and embrace your calling because you're meant to do great things. And then we go home, we're like, I don't know what that means. I don't know how to do that. And there can be this guilt inside of us that says, well, I just, God must be so disappointed in me. He's not. He's not. God loves you so much. And just like he was faithful to Moses throughout this entire period, he'll be faithful to you. Amen? Amen. Everybody say, God is faithful. Amen. Now, as we all know, the last plague, Pharaoh and all the Egyptians lose their firstborn. That's heavy. Really heavy. It's the only plague that God does by himself. The only plague that God does by himself. Moses doesn't say anything or do anything like magnificent, neither does Aaron. God brings that on. So we're going to now pick up in Exodus chapter 13. And we're going to start in verse 17. Everybody say, the Bible's awesome. Just one more time. Say the Bible's awesome. As I've studied the Bible, specifically the Old Testament, the New Testament's beautiful too, and I'm sure there's so much richness in that that I still have yet to uncover. But as I studied the Old Testament, man, there's something beautiful about the Hebrew mind and the way that they write things. The way that they write things is through what we call imagery. It's concrete. Um, Greek thought, which is mostly New Testament, is called abstract thought. So you see things like God is love, right? And we ask ourselves, okay, God is love. I can kind of understand that, kind of comprehend it. The Hebrew mind says things like God is rock. And anything that associates with that picture of rock, that's who God is for you. And so it gives people this picture of, of who God is so that they can understand in a deeper way. As you study the Old Testament, I encourage you on your own time, when you see images, when you see names, when you see places, dig deeper. Because there is so much in the text that we just read over. And that's something I want to show us this morning. So it says, when Pharaoh let the people go, verse 17, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. This first section of the scripture is so cool to me because it says that the, that the, the Israelites are going free and it says at the end they were equipped for battle. Who's ever felt like you were just ready for something? Like you're ready to just take it on. And what's beautiful about the heart of God is he says, no, I'm going to take you a different direction because I actually know how you would respond in that situation you think you're ready for. And so the, the, the Israelites are equipped, they're ready, they, they want to go to war, they just got freed, they saw God obliterate the Egyptian gods, so they're just pumped up. And then it says, God took them the longer way around because he knew if they ran into the Philistines, they weren't ready for it. Who's grateful, man, that God is so loving to keep us away from the things we're not ready for yet? Amen? You guys need to get lively. Everybody say amen. All right. I preach better when I feel like I'm loved, so... Please love me. Please. Oh, that was so nice, guys. God knows what we can and what we cannot handle. So my first question, I love teaching in questions. It's the way Jesus did it. My first question, do you trust that God knows what's best? Do you genuinely trust in all things that God knows what's best? And for me, I say yes. I say like, yes, God, I know that. I know that you know what's best. 
And then I run into these things in life where I find myself acting like I don't know what God knows what's best. And I know we can understand that. The other day, I pay, I'm still paying off student loans. Who pays off student loans? I hate those things. They're awful. I wish I could just buy a new car or something with that money, but I can't. I'm paying off my student loans. I had two different organizations that I took, or two companies I took student loans out of. One was a state student loan, one was federal. The state student loans, I paid off, like just flat out, paid all of it off. It was incredible. Cece and I have dedicated ourselves to get out of debt completely, so all we have left is student loans. So I pay off my state student loan, right? Pumped, so excited about it. But I do things with online banking, so for some reason, I left that account still on my, my pay-to accounts, okay, my pay-to page. Now, my other student loan is through a federal organization. Now, I pay all my bills online, like I said. The other day, somehow, instead of me paying my federal student loan, I sent $500 to the wrong organization, and I haven't heard back from them, and I have no idea what's going to happen with that money. And I found myself the other day just, and like, and I feel shame, but I know God is just there like, it's okay. Like, I have patience. It's okay. But I found myself like freaking out, just sitting on the couch. Cece's trying to talk to me, and I'm just like zoned out. Like, I don't want to talk at all, period, right now. I don't care what that person's going through. I don't, like, I don't, I'm just lost 500 bucks. I have no idea how to get it. I just had to put all this money into my car, and it's frustrating. It's so difficult because we can say, man, God, I know you know what's best, but then we're faced with the reality of, I don't have money. Like, I just, I don't have money. I don't know how I'm going to get through this season. And there's this moment where God is so good, so good, and he just shows up. Even now, I just feel him showing up where he says, it's okay. I'm going to get you through this. It's okay. I'm going to get you through this. And you don't have to panic. You don't have to worry. And even if you do panic, and even if you do worry, I'm still in it with you. I'm still in it with you. Everybody say, he's in it with me. Amen. Verse 20 says, they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. That they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So this morning we're going to get into some um, ancient geography. So you can throw up that map. Boom. There's a little place up there called Etham. You guys see where it says Etham? Yeah, where it says uh, at the top? Etham is literally the word dead end. That's literally what it means, dead end. And it says that the Lord moved them from Sakoth and encamped them at dead end. I thought it was ironic that the word looks like sucketh. Have anybody ever felt like you were like in the land of sucketh? Like everything's just sucketh right now. <laughs> But what about when God takes you from the land of sucketh to the land of dead end? What's up with that? Like, what is up with that? What does that feel like? Like, God, I trusted you. I tr- you, you did all this magnificent stuff, and I trusted you. And now I found myself in this place where everything's falling apart left and right. It just is awful. And God says, oh, it's okay. I'm going to take you from this place to the next. And then the next place you find yourself, you're at a dead end. And this is God leading his people. And they find themselves in this dead end facing mountaintops. And they have children. They have, they have pregnant women. They have carts. They, they plundered Egypt's cattle. And they find themselves in this dead 
end. Who's ever felt like you were led to a dead end? Good. (laughs) I'm not the only one. But here's the beautiful thing. It says, the pillar of fire, the pillar of the cloud, never left them. Say, God's in it with me. He never left them, never left them. So here they are, stuck in a dead end. Then the Lord said to Moses, so you can imagine, they find this dead end. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihahiroth, between Migdol and the sea. In front of Baal-Zephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. So they arrive at their dead end, and the God says, okay, cool, you got here, turn back around. And Moses, can you imagine leading over a million plus people? And he's like, okay, guys, God's leading us and we're going to find this promised land. It's going to be incredible. Bam, dead end. Uh, What do we do now, God? Oh, just have them turn around. What do you mean have them turn around? Why did you have us come to the dead end in the first place? Who knows that sometimes God's ways don't make any sense, like literally, legitimately make zero sense. And these people are faced with this. They're stuck in this dead end. And then God says, okay, turn back around. Go back to where you just came from. And now Moses has to take that message. Understand, he's the only one actually hearing the voice of God as far as we know. He has to take this message. Okay, guys, um, can I get everybody's attention, please? We have to turn all one million plus of us around. I know. I'm not crazy. I promise. Like, Can you imagine what the people of Israel were thinking about him? Like, this guy is not hearing from God. This guy's not hearing from God. He's leading us all over the place. He's so misguided. He's so misdirected. And I remember back in my own life when I was a young person, I looked at some of my spiritual leaders like, dude, you you don't have no idea what you're doing, do you? You have no clue what you're doing. God would not tell you to do that. God wouldn't ask me to do this. It doesn't make any sense. And Moses is faced with that with his people saying, I'm, like, this is what God is legitimately calling us to do. And I just have to put myself in his shoes because I remember so many times as I was in ministry and I genuinely knew God was calling us to do things and they made zero sense. Zero sense. And the backbite you get when you make decisions that make zero sense is incredible. And I can only imagine what it was like facing a million plus people Not to mention the oxen. Those oxen hate walking around. Do you know that? Oxen hate walking. So they're probably frustrated. Their poor little feet are just aching. And Moses tells them, turn around. And camp in front of Pihahiroth between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. Migdol, everybody say Migdol. You can throw that map back up. Literally means watchtower. So we need to understand that that the ancient writer, Moses, he's writing this out. So odds are, if this place hasn't already been named, they're giving them Hebrew names as they go based on what they see. This place, Migdal, literally means watchtower. What we learn is that there was probably an Egyptian watchtower posted up on the top of this mountain, checking out the whole scene of what was going on in this valley of Etham. And so what do you see? You have this, this Egyptian guard watching, checking out the people of Israel as they walk back and forth and back and forth. And he's like, these guys are idiots, man. These guys are doomed. I'm going to send a bird and tell Pharaoh something that these guys are just done. Let's just take them out right here. Now, Baal-Zephon, we'll get back to that in just a moment. Exodus 14.3, God's continuing to speak this. He says, tell them to turn around. He says, for Pharaoh will say, of the people of Israel, they're wandering in the land. 
The wilderness has shut them in, dead end. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. And I, God, will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. So we see this underground thing, this thing, this behind the scenes moment where God is luring in the enemy while his children are standing there in confusion. And we have these phrases, God's not a God confusion. So true, but that means God's never confused, not that we're not ever confused. I find myself confused very often. Very often, God, what are you doing? Why are you doing it? And what we see going on behind the scenes is God is luring in the enemy. I have a question for us. How often do the frustrations, the confusions, the doubts, how often are those actually God's plans to lure in your enemy for the setup? You see, we know the end of the story. We know where this is all going. These people had no clue. They're facing a Red Sea, a dead end, and right behind them is Egypt. What are they supposed to do? What are they supposed to do? How often are the moments where we feel like, God, I have no options. My options are expended. I have nowhere to go from here. How often are those actually moments where God's setting something up? How often are those moments where God's setting something up? We'll continue in verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, what is this we have done that we have let the that we have let Israel go from serving us. So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pihahiroth in front of Baal Zephon. So Pharaoh does exactly what God said he would do. Does exactly what God said he would do. Now remember, it makes sense for Pharaoh to do what he does, what he does, because all of Egypt is destroyed. The crops, the buildings, everything, I mean, their children are dead. Everything has fallen to shambles. And it says that Pharaoh is there with him and his servants, and they're just kind of looking around. You must, there has to be this moment where like, oh, somebody's got to clean up this mess. Like somebody has to clean up this mess and his servants don't want to go do it because his servants used to have servants and they don't want to go do the work anymore. And so they pursue the people of Israel. They pursue them they, and, and it says they overcame them. That's the word used. It says they overtook them and camped at the sea. And again, I don't mean to get redundant, but how many times do we feel overtaken? by finances, by family issues, by, by personal struggles that we're going through? How often do we feel like, man, I have nothing left, nowhere else to go. I am defeated. Who's going to fix everything? So Pharaoh sends him out. Now again, remember where they are. It says that they were overtaken by Pharaoh in front of Baal Zephon. So now I want to get into that. So go ahead and show that map one more time. So here you have Etham. They get there. They turn around. Now they're camped out there. Um, by Pihahiroth, which means open mouth. Pharaoh's coming over from there, that, that green arrow at the bottom. Then you have this thing in the middle of the Red Sea called Belzephon. If you study history, Belzephon is actually a god. It's, it was a temple. It was a shrine of offering and worship where they worshiped this god, Zephon. Now, Zephon 
was one of the last standing gods that the Egyptians worshipped. One of the last standing. I mean, God just obliterated so many. Each plague took out like three or four gods represented. And so now we're faced with this. Now the people of Israel are facing Egypt's last standing God. One of their last standing gods, I should say. Not only that, now they're overtaken by Pharaoh. If you don't know Egyptian history, Pharaohs were God on earth. That was the representation. Pharaoh was believed to be the son of a God, of a, of a deity. So he represented God on earth. He was a God on earth. He was worshiped. So now you have the people of Israel literally trapped between the two last standing great powers of Egypt, Pharaoh and Belzephon. Trapped, totally trapped. And so Pharaoh must have this thing in his heart where he says, we got them now. We got them now. You took out everything that I had. Now I'm going to take everything out that you have. I have my buddy over there, Belzephon. I have my army over here. And all you have is a dead end in a sea. Where are you going to go? What are you going to do? Where are you going to go? The Israelites are now trapped. So in verse 10, it says, When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes. And behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. They were ready for war, like, 15 verses ago. They were just equipped for battle. And now they're faced with battle. And what do they do? They cower. They start playing the blame game. Isn't it so interesting? And there's no shame. It's just realization. We need to come to this place where we're able to analyze the deeper, darker things inside of ourselves without giving into shame, but honestly exposing it to the light so we can grow out of it. And it's interesting how the battles, it's interesting how the hard times, it's interesting when we're trapped that suddenly true character starts to show. True personality starts to demonstrate itself. And that's not shame, it's just honesty. It's something we need to face because it is not what God's given us. We've been freed from fear. We've been delivered from all this stuff. But even for my own self this week, I had to go back and meditate with God and be like, God, why did I give up so fast? Why did I give in to my financial issues so quick? Why did I just throw in the towel and start throwing pity parties and acting like a little baby? Like, why did I do that? And then I had to make a decision and say, God, I refuse to be that because you have separated that from me. It's not who I am. That's not who I am. Everybody say, that's not who I am. So what's interesting is Pharaoh feels like he has the victory. The Hebrews feel like Pharaoh has the victory. They're freaking out. They're like, oh my gosh, we knew it. We're just here to die. That's the whole point. That's the whole, God hates me. God just, like, I know people that, I mean, I, I'm sure some of us in this room have gone around like, God just hates me. But obviously, look at my life. God just hates me. And these people are faced with that. Like, God, why would you do all these big, magnif magnificent things only to trap us between some two of the strongest gods of Egypt? You must hate me. We're just here to die. That's it. Cynical. Who knows some cynical people? Don't raise your hand. You might be sitting next to one. I'm just saying. They just witnessed the power of God. They were equipped for war. And they doubted so quickly. But let us not be too judgmental because we do the same thing. We do the exact same thing. 
our husband or our wife says something that just offends us and we blow up. It's like rage. It's like, <laughs> it's like, what do you mean I didn't comb the kid's hair right? He's a kid. He doesn't care what his hair looks like. What do you mean the pants don't match the shirt? He can't, he doesn't even know. And we see all this stuff just bubbling out of us. You're a school teacher, right? And I remember, um, I had school teachers, and I wasn't a good student. And they blew up on me, frustrated. You know, one of the things that some of my teachers used to tell me is like, dude, if you're not dead by 18, you'll be in prison. I was like, thanks. <laughs> really needed that pat on the back. Thanks. Aw. But so often, man, we do the same thing. Verse 13 says, as Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm. And we... We've see this, we see this scripture on like bumper stickers or refrigerators or Christian t-shirts, right? It says, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you will have only to be silent. Who's ever said something like motivational but was completely out of yourself? I think we think Moses is speaking for God here. We're about to find out Moses isn't speaking for God here. Moses is facing defeat. And so the thing that he does as a leader, as us leaders often do, is we throw out a motivational speech. Like, no, it's okay. Stand. Just shut up. God's going to do something awesome. And really, it was just a, a tactic to get the people of Israel to shut up. Like, that's how he closes it. All you need to do is be silent. Just stand firm and just be silent. Stop talking. Watch God move. God's about to fight for you. God's, so he says this thing, and it's just like this motivational, fear not. Fear not, people of Israel, stand firm and see that the salvation of the Lord, it's coming for you, he's gonna, he's gonna fight this battle for you. And Moses is probably thinking in the back of his mind, come on, God, you gotta back me up, man. Like, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of Egyptians over there. Pull through, please. And how does God respond? We overlook this verse, I think. Verse 15. Moses just gives out this speech. It says, the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Whoa. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Why do you cry to me? God is not against you throwing out your complaints and your lamentations and, and your laments and all your fears and struggles and trials, God is not against that. But if we remember what we were taught last week, God has put something inside of your hands. God has called you to do something in this world. And oftentimes when it's our turn to stand up and do something for this world, we say, God, where are you? And God says, why do you cry to me? Tell them to move. Moses, do you not see that there are like thousands of Israel, like Egyptians coming right at you? Move. And Moses is like, just stand firm. Just, just stand firm, guys. It's going to be okay. Take the wave. Take the wave. And he gives this huge, this big speech. And God says, why? Why do you cry to me? Tell them to move forward. Everybody said, get moving. Everybody say, get moving. 
And here's what happens. Remember the staff we talked about, your identity, the thing that God has redeemed, the thing that God has given back to you with his new identity in it, embedded in it, his power within it. And he says this to Moses. He says, Moses, stop crying, get up, tell them to move on and lift up your staff. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. Listen to this. He says, Moses, you lift up your staff and stretch out the sea and divide it. Or stretch your hand over the sea and divide it. You see, oftentimes we're scared. We are so scared. God, I don't want to take your glory. God, I don't want to take your honor. I don't want to do these things. You can't take God's glory or honor. It is his. You, can, you on your best day cannot do anything to even come close to touching the glory of God. You cannot. We can fool ourselves with pride. This isn't pride. This is calling. He says, Moses, you lift up your staff and you stretch out your hand over the sea and you divide it. It's not that Moses had a magic trick that divided the sea. Obviously, it's God's power that does it. But if we do not embrace the God that is within us, if we do not embrace Christ that is within us, if we do not embrace the power, the love, and the self-control that are within us, God is going to continue to stand there saying, why are you crying? Get up and do something about it. I've given you what you need. Do you understand? We talk about the fruit of the Spirit. We talk about the gifts of the Spirit. And we act like they're like fruits on a tree that we have to like go out of our way and pick them off and like partake of them. And then, okay, sweet, now I need some peace. Now I got some peace. No, it says Jesus breathed on his disciples and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Everything you need, God has already placed inside of you. You have a spending problem? Self-control, man. It's there. Stop spending. You have a lust problem? God's giving you self-control. Break your phone, break your computer, break your iPad. They are not worth your eternity. You have an issue loving your wife or your spouse? Love's a choice. Love is a choice. It is action. It is, you know what? Maybe the feelings aren't there, but I still choose you the way I chose you on that day. You have kids that you can't deal with? You had them, so deal with them. What is in your hands? Lift up the staff. God gave it to you for a reason because maybe God trusts you. Maybe God believes in you more than you believe in yourself. Christianity was not just us coming and asking God, hey God, do these things, do these things, do these things. He says, no, I want you to do this with me. This is relationship. I want you to walk this out with me. So he tells him, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand. Over the sea and divide it, and the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground, and I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. God, this story is so good. That story is so good, and you have to put yourself in the shoes of Moses. What do you mean lift my staff? That's your big plan? God, that's your big, you want me to lift a stick? There are thousands upon thousands of them. There's a sea in front of me. There is a dead end on, to my left. There's another God over there that's just waiting to crush me, and you want me to lift up a stick? And imagine that moment. Like just imagine, he, Moses has no clue what's going to happen. He hasn't experienced this yet. We read the text. We're like, oh, sweet. God's about to part the Red Sea. Moses is like, 
but he steps out. When it made no sense, he steps out. He lifts it up. When it made zero sense, man, he lifts it up. He obeys. He obeys. What's beautiful is the text doesn't even say how he felt about it. He just did it. And as God's writing your story, he's not going to be there writing all the shame and the guilt and the fear and the, all, the, all the stuff that's, that, that we all know is there. God says, no, Moses lifted the staff and the sea split in two before them. And what's even more miraculous to me, says the land was dry. It wasn't like damp or like part, I mean, it should have been muddy, guys. This is a sea. It says the land that they crossed over on was dry beneath their feet. Was dry. Then the angel of the Lord of God who was going before them The host of Israel moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud of darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. What's more crazy is after God has Moses do this thing, lift up the stick, the presence of God leaves him and goes behind him. We understand God's omnipresent, correct? Correct. He could have just made another pillar of smoke come down. There could have been another pillar of fire to keep the Egyptians away from the Israelites. But for some reason, God in his sovereign wisdom decided, I'm going to remove myself from before the people and I'm going to go behind them. And they're going to have to walk forward without knowing that I'm there in front of them. They're going to have to walk forward when it seems like I've gone behind them. Has anybody ever felt like God left you? Let's be honest. Has anybody ever felt like God abandoned you? This is so incredible because, again, we need to understand God is always with us. Where we go, he is there. Where our feet touch, territory is taken. We carry the presence of God. And if you don't feel it and if you don't see it, it doesn't change it. He's always with you. Everybody say he's in it with me. But sometimes he's going to make it seem like he isn't. And you're going to have to make a decision. You're going to have to have free will that chooses, that says, you know what? Even though it seems like God's left me, I know, I know as a matter of fact, he has not abandoned me. He's with me. So God goes behind them. And what's so cool, I mean, I just think about my sons as they were learning to walk. Eventually, I had to let them fall. Eventually, I could no longer hold their hands. They had to strengthen their legs so that they could get to the point where they can run and jump the way that they do now. And God loves you too much, too much to not let you grow your legs out. He loves you way too much to not trust you with some degree of responsibility that says, carry this, grow, grow. God loves you too much for that. Maybe it's time We stop paying attention to the enemy or our limitations or the struggles or the darkness. And maybe it's time we just start moving forward in obedience. Maybe it's time we as a people pick up whatever God's given us. What is the staff in your life? You lift it up and you tell that sea split because I know who's with me. Even if it doesn't look like it, I know who's with me. So take what is in your hand, move forward because God has your back. God's got your back. So move forward. 
Exodus 14, 21, I'll try to wrap this up. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And the Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea. All Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen, and in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of a cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee before, from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians." Moses obeys, God moves in power, the people walk across on dry land, God allows the Egyptians to pursue them into the sea, and God goes to work and shows the Egyptians who truly has power. And now the Egyptians want to retreat. It makes me wonder, sometimes when the enemy is its closest, if that's because God's about to show himself strongest. So I look at my $500 deficit and I say, okay, God, you're about to do something awesome. I, that's what I believe. God, you're going to do something awesome. I don't know what's going to happen with that $500, and I'm trusting something incredible is going to happen with that $500. And I don't know what your situation is. Insert your story here. I don't know what your struggle is, but you can choose to say, God, I don't know what's going to happen. My enemy seems insanely close. It's uncomfortable, but I trust you're going to do something through this. Amen? Amen. Now remember, Zephon, you can put up that map one more time. Belzephon, close this out. I said it was a temple to a god. If you haven't already guessed it, Zephon was the god of the sea. He was said to rule in power and might through the sea. And Pharaoh was the god on earth, and he was said to move in power and might through the Egyptian forces. And God is about to obliterate both of them. In the face of the Egyptians, in the face of the confidence of your enemy, God says, I will build everything against myself in a way. I will stack all the odds against my people and I will still come through that they may know that the Lord is God. That, the, that they may know that the Lord, and it's blows my mind because now the Egyptians themselves are saying, uh, we should probably get out of here, guys. It seems, we seem a little outnumbered. I'm not sure what's going on. Belzephon's having a bad day. He might be upset. Did you bring your offering to him? Did you bring your off? Maybe he just hates us. I don't know. And they're freaking out. And it says that they began to say that the Lord, the God of Israel was against them. How often do our enemies in our lives praise our God? How often do the enemies in our lives praise our God because they see how strong he is as we take up our staff and we split the seas and we walk through it with faith and obedience? How often does the world look, man, there's something different about those people. Ron gave an incredible sermon a couple weeks ago about winners and losers. And it blew my mind. I was back there in the, like, the sound booth just like pumped. I was just jumping. Because yes, we are not called to be defeated. We're not called to be losers. We are not called to be buried underneath the sea. We are called to part it, walk through it, and watch our enemies drown in it. Amen? And now the Egyptian army is confessing the name of God. Now to close this out, 
We'll finish the story. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. Obviously, there's no doubt at this point. Like he just saw a stinking sea split in two. How can he even question it anymore? And so he says he stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. All of the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. Say, not one remained. One more time, not one remained. Say that over your life right now, over the enemies, the things you feel coming against you right now. Say, not one remained. Amen. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. God alone has true power. God alone has true victory. God alone can set us free, but God wants to use you. God wants to use people. There are, and I, this is just a simple observation, there are empty chairs in this auditorium. And I think a lot of times as a church, we're like, oh, God will bring them in. No, it says the harvest is ripe, but we need workers to go work the field and bring them in. And it's not about just a church. It's not just about Sunday morning. It's about lives changing. It's about people in our society seeing that there's a God out there that loves them, that wants to be a part of them, and wants to give them a new staff, a new calling, a new passion, a new power to do something good in this world. But we wait for God to do something about it. And he's asking you, why are you crying out to me? Do something. Everybody look at the person next to you and say, do something. Just do it. Our pasts, our fears, our enemies, all of it, dead on the shore. I don't know what kind of shame you walked in this room with. That's not yours to hold on to anymore. God wants it dead in the sea. I don't know what regrets you walked into this room with this morning. God has taken that away from you and drowned it in the sea. I don't know what fears you are facing this morning. It's not yours to face anymore. Put it in the sea. Walk through. Step out. What's in your hands? Lift it up. Stop crying about it and move forward and watch God move on your behalf. Amen? Amen. God does beautiful things with our simple mundane. What started as a shepherd's staff just liberated an entire nation of people. And that was not just the call of Moses. That was not just the call of Jesus. That is the call Jesus has imparted onto your life. Onto your life. He has placed that in you. So let's all take a stand as we close this thing. I'm going to ask you all to just repeat this prayer after me. And the power of it is in your belief, not in the words. Everyone say, Father. God, thank you for what you've put in my hands.
Lord, I commit to raise it up and do everything you've called me to do. Lord, all fear, all shame, all regret, all depression, all doubt, I ask that you drown it in the sea. May I walk through in obedience and trust and see that my enemy is defeated. Lord, over all your people this morning, Jesus, I just impart, Lord, a new passion, a new call, a new desire, a new craving, God, to go further, to go deeper, to do greater, to be more. God, not for our glory, but because you are within us, Jesus, and this world has no power over us anymore. The devil has no power over us anymore. God, we don't care what our finances look like. God, we don't care what the family situation looks like. We don't care if it looks like we're surrounded on all sides and there is no hope, Jesus. We know that you are God and we trust that you are about to move on our behalf as we move in obedience. Lord, we love you this morning, God. I love you so much. You are so worthy, God, of all honor, of all praise, of all glory, Jesus. It is yours. And as you won glory over Pharaoh and his hosts, over all those demonic gods, Lord, we are expectant to see you reign in glory over all the enemies and all of his hosts. We trust you. God, you are so faithful. And in Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. We love you guys. You are dismissed.